spend more time in the outdoors and you'll find that everything in life gets better. Yeah, I, I greatly enjoyed this. is one of my funnest podcasts I've ever been part of. No more dreaming, no more wishing. Wave goodbye. I'm gone fishing. Welcome to the Canadian Fishing Podcast. Previously known as the Made for Memories Podcast. Where we explore the sport and business of fishing in Canada. And the memories made in the great outdoors. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Canadian Fishing Podcast. Hi, Brad. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go. <laughs> I know how much you dislike snow, but it is nice that we got snow last weekend because it looks a lot better. So one of our employees who I have this outstanding joke with about not mentioning winter and all those fun things put a sticker in my window that says let it snow let it snow let it snow yeah i thought that was actually pretty funny and i wouldn't mind a little snow for christmas it's it's time we've been pretty lucky we have so we got one more week left here at the factory and then we get a pause for a week between christmas and new year's everybody's gonna go enjoy some time with their family and friends you know what i love most about that week is that you just don't know what day it is. And most of the time you have no place to be and you can just stay in your pajamas and drink lots of coffee and just veg. I like that. Yeah. Yep. I like my annual purge, office purge day. I usually come in here for half a day and just get rid of stuff. It's nice. It's tradition. That's it's very not very exciting. Of you. It's not very exciting, but it's very elevating once it's done. Getting rid of all the crap that you don't need. It's just been sitting in a pile and it's nice. Were you a responsible child too? Uh yeah. I think so. I remember the one story mom did tell me about you was that you used to put up all your Halloween candy on a bulletin board. So it was all like in a straight organized line and you could ration yourself. Yeah. That's very reasonable. I, I remember Uncle Sid saying that I was like, uh, you know, that old TV show, Family Ties? Yes. I don't know if Michael, I've ever watched it, but I know Michael, to which you refer. Michael J. Fox is like a, a young, proper, I don't know, he's maybe 10-year-old, young Republican and his parents are hippies and stuff like that and siblings are hippies anyways i remember uncle sid used to call me alex keaton when i was living with him everybody thought that was pretty funny i never heard of it before that but i'm very responsible yes good for you some of us gotta be right but anyways now i'm looking forward for the break you were telling our family at lunch that you made an important purchase um, for your family for Christmas time. Your kids aren't going to listen to this, are they? Oh, no, they're not. Yeah. No, it's not an important purchase. It's a purchase. We're getting a hamster. <laughs> Rachel wants a dog so yeah. desperately, and somehow you're ending up with a hamster. And we had yeah. a hedgehog growing up. And so at lunch, dad goes, you know, why wouldn't you just get a hedgehog? And Brad goes, because hamsters die faster. Yeah. Well, I don't want my the theory, long-term commitment. <laughs> well, my theory is that they're gonna they're gonna be excited about it for two weeks, and then I'm gonna have to take care of the damn thing. So, this and it could be wrong. I'm wrong. Then maybe we'll upgrade. Do upgrade in a couple of years. Upgrade to hedgehog or upgrade to dog. Upgrade to something. I don't know. But this is kind of funny. So we're picking up this used hamster you know, set up and, uh, the guy's like, yeah. And there, here's this huge plastic, you know, um, bin. He says, we'd rather, we'd recommend that if your kids are playing with a hamster, put them in the bin because we, our kids were playing with them out of the bin and they're quick. And he got between a crack between the dishwasher and the cabinets. And he went into the walls of the kitchen and the husband had to literally rip apart drywall to retrieve this stupid hamster. So 
Lesson learned. Lesson learned. But anyways, enough about Christmas and fun stuff. We have one more guest for 2023. And then we'll join everybody back in 2024. But we've got a a pretty neat guest today, right? We sure do. Um, I found you a tuna guy. So let's start with the bio and we'll go from there. Starting from his first fishing trip at age nine, David is now a second generation guide and owner at Serengeti Fishing Charters. He seems to have inherited fish whisperer skills from his dad, Dave Summer Sr. He has rolled in two of the largest schnook salmon, 64 pounds and 62.5 pounds in Port Hardy to date. He has also become well known on the North Island for catching monster halibut as well, including a 260 pound halibut in 2013 and two over 300 pound released in 2014, a guided record out of Port Hardy. Those are some really large fish. Please welcome David Summers. Yay. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. (laughs) Holy, I didn't even know that. Those. Is there a class above Tai? Because if there is, that should be it. Yeah, those are like once in a lifetime fish. Like a, a blind squirrel finds the odd nut now and then. So if you're on the water enough, uh, uh, you might run into one of those. But yeah, it was pretty pretty lucky. One was in 2010, uh, June 27th, 2010. I was just kind of, I think it was only about 19, 20. And so a little bit green, I guess. But, you know, just I get called in from my dad. Uh, I was out bottom fishing and come on in there's a good bite going on came in first pass 37 pound hatchery chinook which is like rare for end of june alone and then the next pass uh i say to the the guests they're like well i guess we should our camera for the next one so we actually have the 64 pound fight all on film too because uh they just happened to like oh 37 pounder let's uh get get a camera for the next one you know it could be a nice one too and it was 64 which is just completely banana lands uh lucky and and we actually we did kill that one which again uh was pretty young but now anything over about 38 40 pounds um our company um tries to release so as long as they give a good kick and you know they're going to survive we'll release them so and what's that what's an official tie is it tie 35 pounds 30 tie 30, 30 yeah. yeah yeah so like 65 pounds is like a what do you call double tie i don't know how tie yeah, Loch Ness monster. I don't know <laughs> the pig though. That's for sure. Crazy. So for those of us who have trouble visualizing just how large a sixty-four pound chinook salmon is, what's that like lengthwise ish? Um, it was fifty-one inches long by thirty-one um around. So, um, and then the sixty-two and a half we caught, I believe, was forty-eight by thirty. Four, I can't remember exactly. Actually, I haven't my notes because uh, we got the one mounted though, the sixty-four pounder uh, mounted. It's in our um, our game room where I grew up, my parents' house. So, but uh, yeah, they're they're big, big fish. Like this, the fifty-one by uh, thirty-one is really, really long. Like a lot of those big fish are more girthy than they are long. But it was a big male. They had a big hooked nose on it. Big male. So, how old would that fish be? Do you think? seven seven so um the average chinook is three to four years old yeah and then there's certain um genetics and certain fish and whatnot for whatever reason they stay out in the ocean a couple years longer and they just get a lot bigger <laughs> crazy i have topped out at a 14 pound salmon so i'm not doing so uh so red hot in the salmon department no, that's the best eating though so if you want to put something on the barbecue those those teenagers are by far the best like for the fish that uh, my family keeps for our freezer, um, we go out in, in June and, and get all those, you know, 12 to like 18 pounders because they're perfect to barbecue, nice and easy to cook, uh, nice and moist, real real delicious. Cool. Yeah. Well, and and, and it was for sure. Yeah. 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 But Jess, Jess was saying that we need to do a business trip now because, uh, because uh, you know, we have a trolling spoon company and we haven't nearly, we haven't, we have we kind of bought it just before COVID and then, and then we were busy and then we just really haven't gone on a fishing trip with our own trolling spoons yet. So you have uh, to get out here with Wes or something like that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, we used some of your stuff when he was out actually for coho. So good, 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 yeah. good. 
Right on. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about Serengeti and tell us about the history of it and the lodge and the the port and tell us all about 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 Serengeti in general. Yeah, we're a, a family run operation. Um, we kind of started out like when I was a little kid, my dad um, kind of did it more as a hobby guiding. So you take, you know, four or five trips out um, over the course of a summer. So maybe a couple a month and that's about it. Um, and then as I came to around 17, 18, I uh, really, really wanted to uh, kind of take the take that business uh, over and kind of get into it more. So I started uh, convincing my dad to add another boat to the fleet, and I'd do it all summer if I could. So I did, and uh, so he did. He agreed to it, and so we got a thirty-one foot pursuit, and. Um, you know, started booking, started going to trade shows, started trying to try to take it more as an actual business rather than a hobby. And yeah, since then, uh, uh, we've grown to five boats now. Um, and we're, we're up in Port Hardy as well. So my dad's kind of retired out of the, uh, the guiding aspect. He's getting a little, he's 70 years old now. So he's, he's served his time. He's retired. He's still definitely the entertainment and storyteller at the lodge though. He, uh, loves to talk to everyone and and whatnot while me and other guides are cleaning up the boats whatnot he'll be here telling stories and laughing uh having the odd nightcap with with the guests as well so yeah we have great boats 28 to 31 foot pursuits um really nice boats for our area uh we're in port hardy um we have some of the in my opinion definitely the best chinook fishing on the coast um they kind of come down and split the area we we uh fish is is really really huge for uh uh the amount of uh bait in the area as well like even on on years where maybe the, the bait uh in the in the ocean isn't as abundant as it should be or or sometimes is we always just the way the ocean currents bring them we're always just loaded with bait and that's why the salmon come here they stick around here and then we're also lucky enough to have great bottom fishing and halibut fishing so we're pretty lucky that way um and uh and a lot of places we go for the bottom fish halibut we're the only boats you're going to see so none of the other guides or even rec guys or um either know about the spots or b want to burn that kind of fuel to get to where we go so just really phenomenal fishing and and i would like to say we have a pretty good time out there as well so you go home with a lot of fish and a lot of your memories and yeah it's, we try to take advantage or try to look after every little detail that we can as a family business and we've been all over the world hunting and fishing as well so we've kind of taken things that we've seen at other places we've gone and kind of just try to add it to the program so when did the lodge become part of your business? Because you had mentioned it's kind of started as a hobby charter business. Yeah. Um, yeah, no problem. So it uh, we started doing that in 2012, I believe it was. 2011 or 2012. Trying to, I mean, I'm getting, that's that's a long time ago now, actually, when you think about it. Um, yeah, it was 2011 or 2012. And uh, it's a converted bed breakfast. So it's about a 3,400 square foot home, essentially. And we also have uh, some cabins and cottages that we have guests at as well um and we're right in port hardy so we look i'm looking at the ocean behind me kind of right now as well sounds like a I'm terrible like, place yeah yeah it's, it's in the summer it's just phenomenal it rains a lot in the winter i'll say that but in the summer it's just awesome it's really sunny you don't get much rain but yeah we do a max of 16 guests at a time um normally we're probably more in that 12 to 13 range just because you have groups of three or four or two and they just kind of uh, mix in so you don't really have uh like every if, the only way we take 16 is if every boat's four per boat and normally we have a mixture of three per boat or two per boat or four per boat so that's nice though it's kind of a intimate more intimate low-key experience that way yeah it is it is it is for sure like uh you know like the, the places like langara and whatnot like they're really upscale um you know but there's 100 people there um they're very expensive as well um but yeah we're more of an intimate you know we're a family we have a lot of families that bring their families and and they bring their grandkids and, and their kids and stuff like that. So that's probably my favorite trip is when there's a grandfather with a father with a, a kid. It's just the most fun out there. It's because they just the, the grandparent and the dad are just so happy to see the kid just smoking fish left, right, and center. So it, it's a lot of fun. That's probably my favorite trip to have. Uh, I had a bad, I, no, not a bad experience. I had a West Coast of the West Coast of the Island experience. Oh, yeah. I, I know where through. this is going. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, that's 20 years ago now, but I remember it well because it wasn't violent by any means, but at one point you're in the bottom of a swell and you look on either side of you and all you see is water 
and then you're on the top of the swell and then you see, you know, the whole world. Um, how are the waves where you're at? Are you sheltered? Or are you, are you, we're, are you right, right in the middle of the Pacific? No, we're really lucky that way. So like, uh, when you look at the West coast, of Island, they, you know, that swell comes right into where they are. Um, our travel out to where we fish is all sheltered, completely sheltered. Like in the morning, it'll be flat calm. Um, almost, almost every day, but just six out of seven days of the week. Um, and then once you get out there to the actual salmon grounds, you only have about two miles where you're in a bit of swell. But we have a big bank that goes out that breaks down the swell quite a bit. So it could be a two meter, three meter sea on the west coast of Anchor Island, and we only have a meter swell, which is nothing. A meter swell is three feet and spread out over usually eight, nine second uh, period. Um, it's really nice. Like this last January, or uh, January, this last July was the calmest I've ever seen in July. Like we literally had two days of wind where it wasn't flat calm all the July. And that's even out to our bottom fish grounds, which usually there's some swell, but uh, we're really lucky that we have the weather we do compared to other places where you um, need to go to have really good fishing. So we actually have like really nice weather, relatively speaking for sure. And we do have sheltered spots too. You can hide in if, if it is a rough day or if someone's getting seasick, but we try to recommend everyone to get the seasickness patch um, before they come out. It's just a little patch put behind your ear and complete game changer honestly like uh i think i've had in all my years guiding maybe three four people get sick with that on out of probably thousands huh. so it works like a a, a really really well it's, you can't really get it in canada anymore you can get it in the states though i'm sure you can find it somewhere online as well but yeah that that seasickness patch is a absolute game changer oh. Oh. well even for I, you even for you i bet yeah i'm i'm a land lover that doesn't love water I mean, I'm okay with water if I'm on a boat and I have confidence in the captain, but I don't love water as a general idea. So if I'm in big swells and with water, maybe it was that one trip that made me sketchy about it. I'm not sure. No, it's probably because I'm a landlubber more than anything, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair for sure. That we definitely do have some guys that uh are a little more fond of the land, but uh yeah, we don't have very many rough days where we are. We may be in a whole season i'm on the water about 90 to 100 days and i'll i'll say maybe seven out of, out of those 90 to 100 days or are days where i would say it's rough other than that um we're pretty lucky with with uh where we're at oh that's a good sales pitch that's a real good sales pitch brad sold um <laughs> so dave the reason that uh we were able to coordinate this is i actually um was referred to you by west david from fishing the wild west tv and uh we rebranded the podcast and brad's like we need a tuna guy on here and i was like i need a tuna guy does anybody know a tuna guy and then west is like oh you should reach out to serengeti but i'm not hearing anything about tuna so is that am i am i being misled i mean i'm not complaining about giant chinook salmon and no giant you're not you're salmon, not but is tuna a thing oh yeah tuna so albacore, tu albacore tuna out here is is uh uh the most fun fishery you can possibly do on the west coast but for people that don't like big water you probably don't want to do it because you are usually between 40 and 60 miles offshore oh yeah i don't want to do you're, that then. yeah you're out in the middle of nowhere um <laughs> you got to go where the warm water meets the cold water so uh and i just i just started getting into it about i guess first year covid 2020 and uh, I feel like I picked it up pretty darn quick as it's my job. I should be able to, I, you'd hope so anyway. But uh, this last year was just awesome for tuna. Just amazing. Every time we we're out, we were, I think the least we got was 24. The most we got was 35. And those are albacore tuna. Um, and nice size this year, probably average in the 18 to 20 pound range. So they're the most fun you'll have like with your clothes on. It's absolutely just amazing. Like the, you have, uh, usually we have like seven hand lines out four rods and you get in the schools like this year we had nine on at once um and, just, and we only had four of us on the boat so it's absolute chaos so it's it's uh it is just unreal like my favorite fishery by far i look forward it usually starts around beginning of august i don't usually get out there until about mid-august uh mid-august to mid-september is kind of like when i i'll go out and, and target tuna and uh that's just when the warm water moves close enough, right? Because before that, they could be 100, 150 miles offshore. So they're way off there. It's just too far for for the average sport fisherman to go. Like the commercial guys will be out there, but not us. Um, and then in, usually in 
beginning of August, sometimes the end of July, depends on the year, but mid-August reliably, that warm water kind of comes a little closer and you can get out to them. So how do you catch a tuna? Like how uh, I I am very pleased, Jess, that you got a tuna guy on. I was talking more of the eight hundred pound tuna is not a thirty pound tuna, but a thirty pound tuna is still not a good. Three hundred pound halibut. Three hundred? Well, yeah, that's true. I didn't ask for a three hundred pound halibut. We'll talk about that next. I maybe. delivered, didn't I? Yes, you delivered. I would like to know how you catch tuna. Uh, you troll for them. How you catch albacores, anyways? You troll for them. So we're going about eight miles an hour. Um, oh, seven, fast. eight miles an hour. Yeah. So you're going at a decent uh, speed and then you have for the most part, top water, um, uh, zookers and stuff, um, that skip on the top and then you have birds or there's a bunch of attractants, um, uh, that you can put, that you put in front of it. usually about eight or nine feet in front of the, the zookers. And it's a lot of splashing essentially to, to kind of put it in layman's terms as you try to make as much splashing as you can. And that tracks the tunics. They think it's either birds on top of the water on bait, or I think it's bait jumping. And they come and they see the zookers and they pound the zookers. Um, so um, it's almost all all top water. You can put, we usually put two down lines. They're called divers down, and they're only seven eight feet beneath the the surface. And then you have zookers behind them as well. So what is so a zooker? And, um, it's uh, I have I have some downstairs I can show you. It's, it looks like a hoochie almost. Okay, you know what a hoochie yeah. is. Yeah. So it looks like a hoochie, but it's a little bit heavier and made of rubber, like a, a stronger rubber. Like it's pretty hard to mess up. I mean, quite a bit longer. It's probably about, I don't know, about six, seven inches long. Okay. So like a big rubber plastic plug with some, some taily things. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. And then there you can use cedar spoons and or cedar uh, plugs and stuff as well. Um, I'm more of a, uh, a zucker guy, but yeah, no, they're, uh, it, it's just the, one of the, most fun fisheries I think I've ever experienced, if not the most fun fishery I've experienced um, because of the action. And like you will have like an hour where you catch like 15, 20, and then you might have an hour off where they kind of dive back down because you're out there in 6,000 feet of water. So they have a lot of space to go and you're in the middle of nowhere. So like you really got to, usually we have someone on the roof with binos looking for them jumping. And that's probably the best success rate we've had is someone up there spotting tuna jumping and then you go towards them and then get into a school and then all chaos breaks out and like they're warm blooded as well so as soon as you catch them you need to, to gill them to bleed them out and you put them in a slush bucket it's like ice um with mixed with salt water upside down let them bleed out and cool down so the meat doesn't spoil and then after about 15 minutes in that slush bucket they have to go on ice right away as well so you're kind of limited by the capacity of your boat on how many you can catch because the limit's like 20 per person so you can catch a lot of a lot of tuna but um like even with three extra coolers full of ice and all my holds full of ice i could still probably max out at about 45 tuna on board if they're average size 17 pounds or so huh. so yeah, who, who so. governs that like because 40 miles out is international waters isn't it i don't believe so no i think it's 200 isn't that international oh maybe i don't know I yeah Okay, so yeah. it's the Canadian government. It, this that's... is it's all Canadian government. Yeah, it's still under Canadian government for limits and things like that as well. Huh. So, um, yeah, and then, uh, uh, but there's so many like you couldn't catch your limit. I don't think if you if you had three people, maybe you could. But as soon as you get four, you want four. Like generally speaking, I want four people on board. Like one drives, one's checking baits, one's on the roof calling out where the fish are, and another one's helping check check uh, check lures as well. Because, yeah, when you get nine on at a time, like we do this year, if you have three people, that's going to just be a, exhausting and be uh, uh, chaotic. So, like, we use halibut rods and, and the, the halibut gear, so 80-pound test, and these big halibut rods and reels for these things. Because for the first four or five minutes of the fight, they just peel. Like, and you don't want to slow down when you first hook up because uh, you still, you're, you know, you're in a school, so you want more to come, come uh, bite, right? So that thing just peels and you're at its mercy pretty much. They're so strong. Like, hmm. and then it's like bringing up a howl, but where it's like a lot or a sturgeon, like where it's a lot of work after that first long run, it's, it's a lot of fun. So when people book a charter with you, do they typically want to fish for halibut or salmon? Um, we do com combinations. So yeah. So on our three day trips, you're going to fish for halibut, salmon, lingcod and rockfish. You do all, all those species. Oh, are those rockfish, those really funky looking ones? 
Yeah, they got spines on them, and, and yeah. the spines are actually poisonous. Not like horribly poisonous, but if you get pricked by it, it's going to hurt for a good 15, 20 minutes. Pretty, like I've gotten poked quite a few times, and it doesn't feel good. A few swear words, and, and then after about 10, 15 minutes, it, it kind of starts to go away, and you start to get your hand back uh, or your foot. But uh, yeah, so we do combination trips. So like every day, we're at least going probably for two of the four species. So a lot of days, like we'll do salmon first thing in the morning and then uh, link cod in the afternoon and then maybe back to salmon if we have to or salmon, then halibut or like this year was so good for Chinook that usually we're tagged out on Chinook by about 9.30 a.m. And then we'd go for the other species the rest of the day. So this was our best year we've seen for Chinook was this year. And and the forecast for the next four years is is supposed to be just as good, if not better, because um, the ocean survival conditions right now for salmon are just out of this world from 2019 to 2023 amazing ocean survival conditions and and that's mainly for the the, the fry going out and the smolts going out to the ocean like the small fish um on the way out of the rivers so 2019 fish four-year-old schnook will come back in 2023 and then four-year-old fish from 2020 will come back in 2024 so um there's the forecast for the next four years is, is looking really really good and uh so I, i'm hoping that uh that stays steady but yeah the quote from DFO that we had at the meetings we were at this year was the best in decades. So, so it definitely was this year. So, so I want to just touch on that at the risk of bringing out some grumpiness um, by, uh, by involving DFO or a question about DFO and, and questions. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the science behind the fishery closures when they happen and how that affects your business negatively uh, versus the uh, uh, what they're trying to accomplish as from a by you know, from, from a conservation point of view, because I believe they did close it for a bit this year, didn't they? And then they realized they had a good stock or was that last year? No, not for us. So okay. um, we're really lucky. So they, they have like from, so right out in front of Port Hardy um, is like, like right in front of Port Hardy is closed um, until July 15th for retention of Chinook. You can still fish, but you can't retain any. But where we go, we don't go right out in front of Port Hardy. Um, it's open. Um, so we've been lucky it hasn't affected us yet. You never know, um, especially with the uh, this government and, and DFO the way it is. Uh, they don't really put much of an emphasis on um, small town um, economics and, and social aspects. They have more of their own agenda um so luckily it hasn't affected us but i know a lot of people it has affected and the problem is is yeah there's definitely certain areas that they're mainly trying to protect fraser river um summer run schnook um and there are definitely some areas um where they have high incident rates with those um those fish but in front of port hardy here it's very 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 minimal like they'll maybe in the course of a summer they're probably maybe out of you know, the 30,000 fish that return, there's maybe getting 80 to 100 that are killed in front of Bohardi. And they're saying that those are, that's enough to close down the whole fishery, which affects businesses in town, um, charter operators. Like area 12 goes all the way down to Port Meal. Port Meal charter operators have to move or they go out of business, right? Like the, it, it's really, I think about uh, a, a dad wanting his kid out too in June or July to go catch a Chinook. Well, the social fabric of, of, a, of an area that is being disintegrated by this lack of like there is science you have to say there's a few fish that are going to be killed there but is that that's a pretty small percentage right so um it's they're not really balancing uh the priorities of the area with uh with uh certain groups that are very vocal um about um closing down any anyone allowed to even keep a fish anywhere in bc if they had their way there would be no fish allowed to be caught on the coast and kept you know there's no middle ground with some of these environmental groups and whatnot so yeah um how talk to me about the hatchery program in bc because i know um sorry i'm, I'm ambushing no, Jessica's no, no. questions here i know she i i've asked like three in a row but i'm interested in this stuff so uh tell me how the hatchery program works NBC and specifically how it works between, you know, the hatcheries in Washington state and how, you know, how you guys share, I, I know you're, 
you're not quite that close to uh, the state, but how does it work from different hatchery kind of situation? Well, we actually catch a lot of Columbia River fish where we are. So a lot of the fish go in Columbia River and even Puget Sound a bit as well. Um, Washington State has a much more involved and much more, um, the government's put a lot more money into it. Their hatchery programs there, like they put a pump out a ton of hatchery fish um, to allow for fisheries and whatnot. Um, the, the, some, there's some environmental groups again that will argue that that's bad for wild fish. And I, there's two sides of that coin. And I say it, it can, there's, that's competition for food. Um, but it's also making sure that not every fish caught is going to be a wild fish. So it's, it's kind of half six of one, half dozen the other. Um, but they put a ton, they pump out a lot of hatchery fish in the States, like a ton. Like if you're fishing on the West coast of Vancouver Island in, um, May, April, June, I bet you in some areas you're close to half your fish you're catching your hatchery and almost all those are from the States. So they pump out a lot of fish. Um, BC does not, and they mark every fish too. So every hatchery fish they let go, they mark it, they kick the adipose fin off to mark it as a hatchery fish. That's how you tell the difference between a hatchery schnook and a wild schnook. Wild schnook will have their hatchery, their adipose fin, a hatchery won't. But in BC, we only mark about 10% of our fish. So even say a hatchery releases us a uh, hundred thousand um, smolts, only 10,000 are actually marked. Like they actually take the adipose fin off. So a lot of times you can be catching what you think is a wild fish, actually a hatchery fish. So there's a big movement now though. They're starting to increase that. They're buying these mass marking machines, which you literally just put fish through it. And it, I don't know how it does it to be honest, but it can mark like 2000 fish an hour or something crazy like that. I cut off the adipose fin on these little fish that are like three inches long. So I have no idea how that works, but they, they do it. Um, and so they're, they're starting to put some money into that. And because we get closer to like those areas that are closed um, down by Vancouver, Nanaimo, Canberra River, um, you know, other places like that, they, they in the future are, are looking at maybe making that a hatchery fishery for until July 15th so that people can still go out and, and keep a hatchery fish, but they got that wild fish go. Because those Fraser fish are going to be wild fish, not going to be hatchery fish. So, yeah, we, we're they're slowly going in the right direction here in BC, but to get anything done with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in any sort of timely manner is like pulling teeth. Like they've been talking about this for 10 years and they're just starting to, to get the funding for these machines now, even though they've been talking about it and been saying, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to get on it. We're going to get on it. And it's just, you know, and then you got to wait another four years for those hatchery fish that are marked to come back. So it's, it's a very long, painful process to deal with government as, uh, as I'm sure most people will realize. So we switch topics away from the government. <laughs> a little something a little a little happier maybe i don't know you're the one who you know introduced that with i'm about to make you grumpy so <laughs> dave doesn't seem to he seems pretty level-headed though he's, he's, he's yeah he's i saw i think i saw his eye twitch just a little bit but he seems pretty level he's uh... oh yeah dfo is is a piece of work but <laughs> i uh you know it is what it is a lot of it's out of control like i'm involved in the sport fishing advisory board and stuff like that as much as i can be um to try to get things done but yeah when it's out of your hands no sense in stressing too much about it my family and i've done a lot of uh trips to vancouver island in the last few years we love it there and so we've gone to lots of different aquariums and it's so fascinating just to learn about how important the salmon population is to the ecosystems it's like it's insane yeah. how that literally feeds everything yeah, the trees, the the bears, and then and it goes on and on and on. Like even the insects, like it's just crazy how one, you know, rotting fish on the side of a bank of a river um, fertilizes the whole the whole um, ecosystem there. This I'm this might sound like a strange question because they do go up spawn and then they die, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but Pacific salmon do, Atlantic salmon don't. Atlantic okay. salmon survive. Because you were talking about them returning every few years, so you're talking. Yeah, so yeah, I'm talking about no, I'm talking about Pacific salmon. So the like the, the, the they'll die, but then their smolts hatch and then go out of the river and they go out to like towards Russia, out in the open Pacific, loop back around. Some come near Alaska, some cut into like where BC is, and they come down the coast and go back to the river, spawn and die, and then the new their their kids go back out and they're just like a, a cycle like that. So. Yeah every, yeah, every time they spawn, they die. 
Gotcha. That doesn't that doesn't sound very much fun. No, no, it isn't actually. Yeah, it's not that. I love life. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that they uh, even you know for the most part find the river they they came from as well. So. Well, we got to ask one more question before rapid fire, because oh, we yeah. talked about tuna, we talked about salmon, we didn't talk about the halibut, specifically the. Yeah guided record out of port hardy so we should probably talk about that before rapid fire don't you think miss producer i agree yes okay all right so tell us about the uh, halibut fishery how do you do it how do you catch them and and the uh the real big one uh, it's it's a lot of fun like i really love halibut fishing a lot of uh some guides just salmon 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 but i love i love halibut fishing i love lingcod fishing um for the halibut the the way that we we fish is that we we anchor up so throw an anchor down the bottom um you gotta be pretty precise on where you throw it and where you end up sitting too so you end up sitting say on top of a hump or knoll or pinnacle yeah you put four rods down and usually have like a salmon carcass and some salmon bellies on there so the tide the current um in the ocean actually takes that scent from the carcass and the bellies down to the halibut they smell it and they come to you like they have a uh a sense of smell in the ocean like like a shark so they can sense blood or scale or whatever it is from a long ways away so you can bring halibut from a mile mile and a half away from you to where you're sitting with your with your bait so it's uh, it's pretty neat it's kind of like sturgeon fishing but um with halibut you're bringing them from a lot farther away so you kind of use that current like uh, of the ocean, like you would a river for surgeon to take that scent to them. And then they smell you, they come up and, uh, and then it's game on. Usually a lot of times you, you have to sit there and wait for like 45 minutes an hour because you're bringing them from down below you in the deeper water. Um, sometimes you just land right on top of them, but normally you got to wait, you know, 45 minutes and then all of a sudden you have one bite and then two bites and then it kind of keeps going. They just kind of start streaming in. Did they camp out and kind of live in, certain spots so they're easier to find um yeah so they like uh sand shale um they will be around rocky pinnacles as well but on the they won't like live on top of the rocky pinnacles or on the edge they'll be around them in, in the sand gravel shale um because they feed on top right so the uh yeah the, it's they have certain areas for sure and and uh as long as you make sure that you anchor it up properly that's the biggest thing that i find is that you got to be very very detailed they gotta know which way the current's going which way the wind's going exactly where to throw your anchor because if you're even 100 feet off of where you kind of wanted to hit you can go from probably limiting out to getting nothing so it's a it's a kind of an art that part of the of the of the uh, fishery as well but they get big like you're saying that you know i think every year we usually get about two or three over 200 pounds um we release them for the most part so uh uh because in in bc you're only allowed to keep fish it changes by the year but usually up to about 70 pounds you can keep and other that you have to release um we have a, a license that people can pay for those bigger ones as well but generally speaking anything over about 100 pounds i try to encourage my guests to release anyway because they won't be as good at eating as as those 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 smaller fish as well so like the when the flays are eight inches thick it's it's hard to get that that middle cooked the same as the outside right you can butterfly them but it's still not as you know those fish under 100 pounds are by far the best eating and i i hear reeling up a halibut i've never caught one i hear reeling up a halibut is like railing up a door uh is that is that accurate yes pretty pretty accurate uh the first what are you a nice one on the first four or five minutes still fight and run and stuff and then it's just like bring up a barn door a barn hard work regular door yeah, no, it's a regular door. Just a, it's it's a lot of hard work, uh, and it's hard on the lower back for sure, and the hamstrings because you're doing a lot of, a lot of wrenching. So oh. a three hundred pound halibut is like a, like a garage, like a if, that, if yeah. a regular is a barn door, then what's a three hundred pound, like a commercial, sixteen foot door kind of dealy or yeah, a garage door exactly, <laughs> but uh, it, it's pretty bananas. But uh, yeah, we. I think we should Luckily. go salmon fishing. Yeah, salmon fishing is the, the one that a lot of guys like the most. It's the most <laughs> fun, I guess. But people love to eat the halibut and the lingcod, right? So yeah. that's mm. the harder work uh, fishery. But 
uh, people mainly, if they didn't taste good, I always say when I'm out there with my guests, I'm like, if these things didn't taste good, no one would fish for them because it's hard work. It's fun because you get into some really great bites and it's just chaotic. But if they didn't taste good, people probably wouldn't fish for them. But the salmon's the more fun fishery probably. Um, I love all three, but for the most part, people, I would say uh, more fun fishery. So I know, I know I said hell if it was my last question, but I have one more question. If somebody was coming to Serengeti on an average year, because I understand regs change, but what, and obviously fishing success changes, but what could somebody theoretically harvest on a four-day fishing trip? What could they bring home with them? Um, so over over the four days, you're allowed uh, four schnook salmon uh, and then four coho salmon, or you can do four pink salmon as well. But we don't really target pink salmon. Coho salmon are better eating. Um, you're allowed uh, two halibut. Um, you can either do two chickens or one bigger one. And then also, again, we have that, that license that allows you to pay for more halibut if you, if you want to take home more halibut as well. Um, you're allowed six lingcod, six rockfish. Um, that's all per person as well. So that's per person. So our average guest goes home with about 130, 140 pounds of pure meat fillets. So that's like, you know, played out fish. Hmm. So over the course of your, of your trip, you got, a lot of guys will probably catch like 350 pounds of, of like whole fish at least 400 pounds of whole fish maybe even more um and we do catch release as well right so if guys want to try to upgrade the size of salmon we'll catch release until they get one that they like or especially when the salmon is as it was this past year you can really be a little bit more picky and choosy too so yeah i guess you're going home with three 50 pound boxes full essentially of of, of meat per person so it's, it's a lot it's a lot like a lot of guys don't even eat that. What guys have families, they'll they'll probably eat that. But you know, just a husband or wife or older couple, they don't usually eat that whole all that in in a year. So it's a it's a lot of fish. Cool. I have no more questions, producer. Kind of hungry for some salmon sushi now. <laughs> well, it's, I have tuna for sushi actually in the freezer right now. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, then, if Brad, you are out of questions for now, I guess it's time to move on to rapid fire. Are you ready, Dave? Born ready. So the rules of rapid fire are we are going to give you eight questions. You have 30 seconds per question to answer. I'm going to hold up the timer on my super handy dandy iPhone. Um, and usually if people go over, Brad keeps score. Um, he I don't like keep he... score. I don't keep score. You don't Sometimes keep... I keep score with certain people. Like West, like West David. You're really super chatty. David. Super West. chatty. All right. Rapid fire. Question number one. What is the most important question to ask when choosing a charter company? Um, There's a few things I would, I would ask. Uh, how how many years the person's been doing it? How many, uh, what type of boat they have as well? Like you don't want to go out there and, and something that's not going to be comfortable. That'll ruin a day pretty quick. Um, but and if, uh, the weather's bad if they have backup plans. So those are the the few that I would probably go with for sure. Um, just just like any any trip, I'd ask as many questions as you possibly can. Just like when I go on a trip, I ask as many questions as I possibly can. And uh, especially when you see that those people see how patient the person is with you as well, because that's how they'll kind of guide you as well. So if they're willing to answer questions easily, that's a big thing. Cool. Question number two. Tell us your earliest fishing memory that really stands out in your brain. I have to say, uh, actually trout fishing, cutthroat trout fishing. There is a, uh, back when I was a kid, there was a derby every year um, in Wash Lake where I grew up. A small town, log community, 200 people. And I think it was five or six. And there's like the little, you know, youth division or whatever. And, and I think I ended up getting like a 17 inch cutthroat and, and won first prize and, Almost every, at least once every two years, I'd win uh, the division for largest uh, youth, youth cutthroat. So that's probably, that was a lot of fun. I remember that like, uh, like it was yesterday for the reason, just catching and then eat, frying it up on the, on the fire afterwards as well. So nice. See, it must run in your blood. Yeah. 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 My dad, he's a, he's taught me a lot of what I know. So question number three. What is your favorite thing about Port Hardy besides the fishing? This is your chance to pump up your community. Go. Uh, 
so definitely San Joseph Bay. So locals uh, have would be mad at me for telling everyone about San Joseph Bay, Bay, but it was actually in the um, McLean's Magazine top like fifteen beaches in the world, or one of those big magazines had uh, top so many beaches in the world, and it was like number like ten. So like it was, it was, it's a uh, one of the most beautiful beaches you'll ever go to um, in your life. Um, it's just stunning. Question number four. The biggest challenge to the West Coast fishery ecosystem and how people can better educate themselves. Biggest challenge. Well, there's a few. Um, I'd say a, a, a tough one, actually. Um, it's not over, over, overfishing in the sense of recreational or uh, commercial fishing because commercial fishery now for salmon is almost completely gone. Um, recreational fisheries take very small amounts. Um, the biggest, or uh, I don't know, that's a tough one. Um, maybe herring fishery, like f fishing the bait that this the salmon eat out. Um, that, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. The biggest, huh? That's a good question, actually. Uh, yeah, I'll go with that. I guess. Sometimes we throw out stump stumpers. That's not a yeah, word. Yeah, that one that one had me. Give me another few minutes, I could probably think of one, but uh that was a good one. Didn't see that one coming. So So the fishery, the biggest summarize the biggest is the the fishery for the bait fish. Yeah, it, it, it can for sure. Like the the it the herring the herring population is what it once was. It's coming back though. So that's a good sign. Um, but you also yeah, you need the need that fishery to support commercial fishermen as well so it's kind of it's tough you know you gotta try to balance all that and that's not an easy job um as much as i harp on department of fishing oceans it's, it's a tough job because you don't know what, you don't know what's going on out in the ocean right as well as as people think that they should or, or they do fair enough question number five i imagine that your wildlife encounter stories are vast tell us your favorite wildlife encounter wildlife encounter uh there's a lot on the ocean actually if we want to relate it back to fishing when we're out fishing we have a a lot of times where killer whales humpback whales are like literally all around us so we had uh we were fishing for salmon and usually when the killer whales come around that's bad news for salmon fishing and we're fighting salmon while there's killer whales like underneath the boat like you look down and you see the killer whales going underneath the boat like back and forth and dolphins all around us so humpbacks like humpbacks out in the water every year jumping 50, 100 feet from the boat, like that is probably, I have lots hunting as well, but that's probably on the ocean. That's probably, the, those those ones are probably pretty awesome. That would be so cool. A humpback jumping from 100 feet away would be pretty intense. It, it, and the sound it makes when it splashes down, like my guess, it actually just happened in June this year. We're like, oh, are we okay here? Like, cause it's, you can tell the weight of those things that it just, oh man, it's loud. <laughs> it's louder than it is anything else. This isn't a rapid fire question, but it's part B. Oh. <sighs> Sorry, I think whales are so cool. How often do you see a whale? Like, is it a daily? Humpback whales every day. Oh yeah. Yeah, at least every second day. Um, dolphins, porpoises every single day. Sea otters every day. Seals and sea lions, unfortunately, every day. That's that's actually one of the things I could have said for what uh is a danger to the salmon population is overpopulation of seals and sea lions, and they do need to be um called. This government we have now won't do that, but uh uh. If uh, the opposition gets into the next government, they've already said they will do it. So, but it's very, they kill seals and sea lions, kill more um, salmon. Actually, I think it's eight times more salmon than commercial fisheries and recreational fisheries combined. Wow. Man. Yeah, that should be my answer. See, I needed a little bit more time. That's all. Yeah. Well, and, and what a wise answer that is. Yeah. Anyways, sorry, we're going to get grumpy again. Question no, number no, no, six. No. Question number six. The most exotic place in the whole world that you have fished other than your backyard. Exotic. Uh, probably Australia. Um, fish for, I think it was Barrett. What was it again? It was in the uh, river actually though. It was in the rivers in Australia. I was only about 10 years old. So it was a while ago. Uh, it, was, it started with a bee. I can't, actually can't remember the species we were fishing. I was young, but that would be the most exotic for sure um brad has a really cool australia fishing story yeah but we can't we're we're already over time jess for god's sake we're the producer 
sorry. It's a good conversation. This always happens. Okay, last question. Oh, no, not last question. Question number seven. Um, You have been featured on West David's show, Fishing the Wild West TV. We already talked about West a little bit. Yeah. Um, tell us the best part of that experience. And do you know what the episode number is offhand? Um, I do not know the episode number offhand. I've, I've been on it three different seasons. And we have uh, four or five different seasons. We have about five or six episodes of West, actually. Um, so don't know offhand. And the best experience part about it, honestly, is is Wes or Wes's uh off camera banter. People don't see it on camera. The guy's absolutely hilarious, just chirping back and forth, and and we have a really good time out there. He has some pretty funny one liners. Um, so you see it on camera a little bit, but him off camera is it's pretty funny. We we chirp each other back and forth. We have a really good time out there. Him and him and Chuck and me. Chuck is a good time. Not that yeah, Wes yeah. is a good time, but Chuck is a good time. All right. Last question. Question number eight. For any of our listeners with ocean fishing experience, what is your number one tip to catching more fish? Uh, so especially with ocean, um, so much of ocean fishing has to do with tides. So you know the area you're fishing, know what the tide does in that area. Because um, certain spots will be good on strong tides, on like strong ebb tides, which is outgoing tides. Some places will be good on strong flood tides, which is incoming tides. And some will be good on like weak uh, ebb tides or weak flood tides. So if you can figure out uh, to know your where you're fishing, like what the tide does and where it pushes the bait, where uh, like if it's better on during the, when the current's going or during the slack, like it's really about knowing the ocean in your area, knowing the tides and, and how fish react to those tides in the area. For ocean fishing, 100%, that's, that's so important. And it's very, very de- detail-oriented as well. Cool. Very good. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. That was a, a great time. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you guys. I'm looking forward to listening to it. And, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad Wes put us in touch. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, because we're going over time, um, I think I'm going to make a really big decision and skip the fishing joke. Oh, right. thank you. Thank baby Jesus. Good, good, good. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I, that's why I talk so much for that reason alone. So before we go, uh, where can our audience find more about Serengeti Charters and follow you and just learn all about Port Hardy? We're on Facebook at Serengeti, S-E-R-E-N-G-E-T-I, Fishing Charters on Facebook, on Instagram as well, Serengeti Fishing Charters. And then our website is www.serengetifishingcharters.com. Beth just got their website revamped. So it's a, a brand new website that just uh, launched a few uh, weeks ago. So I got it all all up to uh, 2023 standards now. So it's, it's a real nice website now. Well, thank you so much again, Dave. We really appreciated having you on the show. And until next time, listeners, happy fishing. Mm-hmm.